This is the word of our God. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we uh, meditate together upon your law tonight, that we would have hearts ready to submit to you, uh, humble to repent before you, but also hearts of joy to celebrate you. So may we learn something about our Savior, and may we love him more dearly, and may we serve him more faithfully for the glory of his name, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. But we continue in our uh, Ten Commandments series here, uh, and we come to the second commandment. With the first four commandments, uh, a lot of the ink that has been spilled on the first four commandments by uh, conservative scholars over the past hundred years has been emphasizing uh, the fact that in the first four commandments there's something really important said about worship. And so uh, the, the idea goes something like this. The first commandment teaches us that we are to only worship the true God. The second commandment teaches us that we must worship the true God in the manner he alone chooses. That the third commandment teaches us the posture or the attitude we need in coming before this God in worship. And the fourth, that he has set aside a time for us to worship. And I think all of that's wonderful. And uh, we're missing something in the commandments if we don't have that kind of mentality that these first four are drawing us to God-accepted worship. What does it look like to worship in spirit and in truth? Well, God sets forth the first four commandments to help us understand the God we worship, the way he wants to be worshipped, the attitude we need in worship, and that there is a time for worship. All of that's wonderful and excellent. The problem is, sometimes we focus on that in such a way that tries to uh, tear apart worship from life. So we think of the first four commandments, potentially, as just about worship, and that they're not saying very much about day-to-day living. And yet, that's a little thinking shows us that that's just not possible. How can you say you're worshiping the true God in the way he says, and on the day he says, and with the right attitude, and then have other gods the other six days. Of course, we can't do that one that way. Uh, How can we think he's going to accept our heart attitude, our posture, how we view his name on Sunday, 
if the rest of the days were taking his name in vain. It obviously says more than just about our posture in worship. It says something about that, but it says it in the context of all of life, having this humility before God and respect for him. Same thing for the fourth commandment. It's built right in. There's a time for worship, but there are six days you're supposed to be doing something else. And that also is keeping the commandment. If God requires you to work six days so you can take the seventh and worship him, then you'd better be doing that honoring task of work the other six days. And the same is true of the second commandment. It says something about how we worship the way God wants us to worship. But it says something about all of life as well. And I think that's the part that in the church today we try to, we really, with the second commandment, try to take those threads apart and say the second commandment is only about how we worship and doesn't say anything about the rest of life. And yet, in the commandment itself, as stated there in Exodus chapter 20, Verse 4 presents us with a command. And it is a command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything. We're not to create images of God. But in, in today's church, we tend to say, no, 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 that's graven images, that's idols. And so that's the lingo for idols. So the idea is you're not supposed to make something to trip someone else up to worship God wrongly or the wrong God. And, and you're supposed to not worship anyone else's idols yourself. So it's still all about worship and doesn't talk about art or other things like that. And yet that isn't what the language says. Although it has carved image there, God goes on to qualify this. Any likeness. Not just don't create something that looks like Baal or, or Dagon or one of these other gods of the, of the world around you, but... Don't create any likeness of me. And he doesn't uh, restrict that to worship. It's a commandment that has the all of life and the worship thing explicit. Just like the fourth commandment. Work six days implicitly. Take the seventh and don't work. Uh, the, the worship and life is built right in. I think we really struggle with that. Um, but... The history of the churches, which does have this struggle and this debate all through it, but predominantly the, the Bible-professing church through the ages has tended to come down that we can't write off that this is about all of life images as well. And so you have the Heidelberg, which we looked at, Larger Catechism 109 as well as uh, I was noticing several of the Baptist confessions from 200 years ago or so, uh, were presenting the commandment um, even more forcefully than Heidelberg with language like any likeness of any part of the Trinity. I, I don't know if many of us would dare say something like that today. Any, any member of the Trinity well, let's, let's think about all of this a bit more. I, I want to think this afternoon about uh, what exceptions are permitted in the making of images of God. And, and I want to think about uh, the, what we do to the benefits. 
what or what we what we do uh, not to to the benefits, but what we belittle uh, by making exceptions. Uh, so so first, exceptions. Are there any? And I think there's especially three that we hear frequently in the conservative church today. Uh, there's certainly ones that people make to me. About once a year, I'll have a conversation with someone, not necessarily in this church, and they'll bring things like this up. So three, uh, three exceptions that we might think there are to this commandment and this prohibition against images of God. Now, the first might go something like this. You shall not make images of God unless it will provide a valuable tool. And, and you know what the tools are, right? The, the tools for teaching. The tools for evangelism. You don't do this unless it provides you with some pragmatic reason to disregard it. That, that's in essence the, the thing we're saying in seeking an exception. That if you have a pragmatic reason, it, it's effectual for teaching. And so it tends to revolve around teaching children. Don't you know that children learn by looking and images better than by listening? We, we, all know, we all know that, don't we? That's just the case. Kids like looking at pictures. It keeps their attention. They don't like books. I can't get my daughter to look at a book that has only pictures. I mean, only words. I can get her to look at books that have only pictures. But not ones that have only words. It's hard enough to get a kid to look at a book that has a picture at the front of each chapter and no more pictures till the next chapter. Like uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. It takes a little while to get them to like those because the, there's only images once every chapter. And, and we want something on every page. And so uh, don't we know that they'll just learn better this way? Or the other thing we tend to say is uh, for evangelism. You know, people are moved by media, not by printed word. And so if, if we just use that, it'll be more effectual. I think the great problem with that is the presumption it makes that we are so different, that our culture and our day is unique. We like pictures. We like multimedia. Well, the Israelites liked multimedia. The Israelites liked images. All you have to do is read the Old Testament. They liked images way too much. There was a serpent on a pole that God gave through Moses. It had a good purpose. They liked it so much, they made it an idol in Dan for the next thousand years almost. That we're not the first generation where children like picture books. And in fact, we're not the first generation that thinks the best way to evangelize is images. That's how all the pagan nations did it in Moses' day. If you wanted to proselytize someone to your religion, well, here's Dagon right here. You can see Dagon. He's got the fishtail, so you know it's a religion that has to do with water. He's frightening looking, so you know you better fear him. Everything, you, you, you just look at Dagon's statue. You know who Dagon is. It's a great way to evangelize people. The, the reality is that when God gave this command, everyone was using images. And God was telling Israel they were to be the exception to the rule. That even though everything in the world around them told them that this is the way it works, they were to trust him and do it a different way. 
are we that different? The pragmatic argument that, you know, the apostles also had drama. They came right off of the glorious days of the Greek tragedy. What media tool could possibly be better for presenting to crowds, maybe in an amphitheater, the tragedy of Jesus Christ? I mean, what better way? Put on the passion. Maybe one of the, the apostles is a good actor. Get him up there on stage. We never find that from the apostles. We do, we do find the language of, of the Greek drama used by Paul in Galatians 3.1. He talks about, you have seen him portrayed as crucified. That's, that's dramatic language. How? In the preaching we've received from the apostles. Back to words. Or Romans, how will they know? How will they know without the Jesus movie? How will they know without a children's Bible? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. The word which we preach, says Paul. Well, you shall not make unless it will provide a valuable tool. Doesn't really stand biblically. Uh, Another exception we often want to make is you shall not make an image unless it's of the incarnate God. If God were to become man, all bets are off. Maybe just stay away, stay away from too much, you know, the spirit. How do you draw spirit? And maybe don't draw Santa Claus and call it the father. But if he's a God man, then he's man and we can use that. I, I have a couple of responses to that, but I'll restrict myself a little bit. One of the things we need to remember, though, is that in the early church, there were long debates over who Jesus was. Some of you endured, endured a Sunday school class this next year that, that got into it, and it's thick, it's hard things to, to study. The God-man. We can't get our brains around that. But one of the things that the early church through this long discussion was able to conclude is that Jesus Christ is God and man in two distinct natures, but only one person. And that those natures are neither divided nor confused. So when we talk about what well, we can draw the incarnate son, one of the, the arguments I often hear for that exception is, well, we're drawing the man Jesus. We're not drawing God. But how do you divide up the man Jesus from God? Can we do that? Are we fallible, sinful humans? able to do that adequately. When we read in the New Testament, because there are those moments, right, where the apostles will use one phrase or the other, Jesus, God, or 
uh, um, G- the man Christ Jesus. And yet when you look at both of those types of texts and the context, the man Jesus, the context is doxological. It's worshiping God for what has been done through the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus apparently forces us to our knees. Which means we can't be saying he's just the man. Paul's saying the God-man. And when we say our Lord and our God, what's the context of that? How does Thomas come to the conclusion, my Lord and my God? He sticks his finger in the flesh and feels the scab of the man, Christ Jesus. See, the New Testament doesn't have a division of the two persons, but rather the God-man is God and man without division or confusion. So how can we put that on paper? How can we sculpt that into stone? How can we display that through acting in a way that isn't a disgrace to the one we seek to portray. Reducing him to something less than he is. Furthermore, the the idea that, well, because God has come in the flesh and and therefore there's uh, someone has seen him seen him and therefore now we can create art of him because we can wrap our minds around him sure the the old testament god is a spirit and is invisible and you cannot see him so how could you portray him but now he's come in the flesh we can portray him the the reality is the old testament believers could have made a similar argument because god did appear visually in the old testament The distinction of the Incarnation is not that God had never ever appeared before. It's that now humanity and deity are forever united in one person. But the Son of God had temporarily appeared in the Old Testament in several instances. Abraham thought he was just some guy. They ate together, they talked together, they took a walk together, they watched the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah together. And after all of that, Abraham did not go back to his tent and pull out his sketch pad and say, Sarah, you're not going to believe it. We've seen God. He probably went back and said, we've seen God. But that didn't open up the door for just imagining him on paper or representing him in ways like that. Joshua saw Jesus in a pre-incarnate state. Right before Jericho. And right back in his camp, Joshua had some really great artists. I mean, really great. Fiber artists, sculptors. You can read about them in the books of Moses. They made meticulous stuff for the tabernacle. They were particularly gifted from God himself. And yet, Joshua did not say, guys, come here. I'm going to describe for you. You need to make a statue right here. Before we go after Jericho, here's the statue of our God. Don't you think that would have been more powerful than a couple of rocks sitting in the river? And yet, even though he had seen God, that's what God shows 
as the teaching tool. And the prophet saw visions of God. The Son of Man, one like the Son of Man. Some of the prophets were particularly gifted artists. Ezekiel, you can tell, he just has that artist's brain. And yet he uses words. He doesn't have a mural put together. They don't have Sabbath school material of the Son of Man in Babylon. The argument doesn't really stand up. We have something better. But that's not the same as saying there had never been an instance of God appearing in a way that could have been understood. And then the the third exception we tend to make, and, and I think this one kind of overarches the other two. It's just the generic thing. It's getting back to Exodus 20 and saying that carved image means idol, and therefore verse 4 only means worship, and the rest of life is whatever. That's the most broad, right? The other things kind of fall under that. But again, we have this issue of what we are doing with art. If we have an image of God that's not for worship. Uh, I've put, I think, a quote on the back of the bulletin there for you to read later. Some of you have heard it last time I preached on this, but it's so excellent. Ryan McGraw really puts a, a brilliant question before us. He says, so you have this image You have this image of God, image of Christ. And you say to me, well, I I have this thing, but it is is not intended for worship. And he says, well, when you look at it and you say, oh, this is is Christ or or this is God, does does it force you to worship? Does it force your heart to devotion to this one whom you look at? And if it moves you to devotion, then the only godly thing you could do would be to worship. But if you do that, you're worshiping through an image. But if you say, well, I no, I, I look at this and it moves me to think of Jesus, but not towards worship. Beloved, whenever we come before God before the face of Jesus. We must worship. We'd better be like Thomas, my Lord and my God. See, if if this art isn't driving us to worship, the question is, what is its purpose? And and if it's that tool approach, the pedagogy, the, the, the I'm going to teach our children, teach them what? Unless it drives them to worship. We can't separate the two. And some of you know this to be true because, and this is true for me, you'll random times be praying or in worship and uh, a kind of blonde, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white guy pops into your head because grandma has his portrait above her bed. Of course these things drive us to worship in the sense that if we associate them with God or with Christ, they will affect our devotional life 
unless we're cold-hearted. And if we're cold-hearted, we have other problems. So here are just the three exceptions. I'm sure more could be put forward, but I I just want us to think this evening. Think about how we belittle, or what we belittle, when we make these kind of exceptions. And the first, which has been the point of, of all I've said so far, is that we belittle the clear teaching of Scripture with this command and other places about the the incomprehensible, eternal, invisible God who is spirit, and according to the incarnate word, we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. We belittle him. And specifically, we belittle, I think, the incarnate Son of God himself. As if imagining him in our image is no big deal. As if we can separate those two natures from each other. Think of just the power of Colossians 1, 15 through 18 again. This is really important. It ought to flavor this whole sermon. I know I haven't exposited the verses. But it's been the point of the whole sermon, isn't it? When you read these texts in the New Testament that say, He is the image of the invisible God, what does the context say to you? Does it say He is now something less? and worthy of less, and desiring less from us than was expected of us when he was not incarnate? Or is it driving us again to worship? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him all things exist, consist. He's the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things he might be first. First. How do you make an image of that? Do do we think, even though he came in the flesh... We do anything but belittle him in trying to put that into a visual form. The preeminent one, the creator God. No, we we belittle the incarnate son. Third, we belittle the the sovereignty of God over teaching and worship. We belittle that as if we know better than God. As if we know better than God. Does he do all things right? Does he know the best thing for our children? Does he know the best way for them to come to know him? Or does he need our help coming up with a better Sunday school material? Does he know the best way to call sinners out of darkness? Or does he need our help? Uh, in college, I had someone, the, the Passion had just come out, Mel Gibson's movie. And I, I had someone who'd grown up in a church say to me, you know, my whole life I've heard the Bible, but now I know God better. And I, I honestly, I don't mean this meanly towards him, but I, I honestly wonder, what God do you know better if you have to go outside of the word for him. And if it is the one living and true God, are you honoring him? 
by having a relationship with him that ignores parts of his word. It sounds mean to say that, doesn't it? Because we know there are people who have been converted on mission fields by the Jesus movie. What, a fourth of the missionaries in the U.S. today probably make that their, their biggest source instead of preaching of sharing the gospel. A lot of the big name organizations, that's what they do. It's the Jesus movie. So God can use that. Does, does that mean it's honoring to him if, if we use it? I, I think it's belittling to his sovereignty over how he has chosen to be known. Fourth, and these last two I think are so important for us. With exceptions, one of the things we do is belittle the calling to be, not to make, Imago Dei. To be, not to make, the image of God. And here, I put another quote on the back of your handout that I just absolutely love. It's from Phil Riken's commentary on Exodus, and he quotes Christopher Wright. So they say the following, The only legitimate image of God is the image God created in his own likeness. The living, thinking, working, speaking, breathing, relating human being. Not even a statue will do, but only the human person. We are not allowed to make God's image, but only to be God's image. I was reflecting on that this last week. And I thought about how sad it is, our misguided attempts at honoring God that become sinful because we're seeking to honor him according to the precepts of our hearts, uh, each one uh, doing what is right in their own eyes. And I think this is one of those ways. But when you think about that quote I just read, one of the things that was drawing me to consider is, Here, we sincerely have believers thinking that they will honor God by making an image of Him. And yet, by so doing, they are sinning. And and is it not obvious to us that when we sin, we are going the opposite direction of being the image of God? What we need renewed in Christ Jesus is the fact that we are sinful image breakers. And so here we think we're honoring God, but in the process, we're belittling his image in us. Belittling the image of God in man. And then we think that's the best way to evangelize people. And it shouldn't surprise us at all if that's how we view this. That having evangelized people, we get them into the church and they don't just say, well, we can make images of God. But rather, since we've set the standard that even our evangelism and our teaching of children is often by breaking or ignoring one of the commands, it shouldn't surprise us when they start saying other commands maybe are old-fashioned too. Like, you shall not commit adultery. Or, or you shall not murder. Or you shall not covet. Well, why do those matter if the second commandment eh, only sort of matters? It belittles the image of God in us. And finally, by making exceptions, 
we are belittling this. We're belittling the Lord's Supper, the sacrament which Jesus Christ gave to his church. Jesus Christ, who is the exact image of the invisible God, the living, uh, the living Emmanuel, who on the night he was betrayed took this bread and broke this uh, bread and gave it to his disciples. He took the the juice, the, the, the vine, and gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body. This is my blood. Are we surprised that in our day and age, a lot of evangelical churches don't really care about this that much? Once a year, four times a year, however often. Oh, it makes it take longer to get to lunch when we have it. Because the service is going to get longer. This is my body. This is my blood. Remember me. But it shouldn't shouldn't surprise us that we don't think much of that. When we think, well, the image which Christ, the image of God, gave us for remembering isn't as good as something I could make and put in a book. Hang on my wall. See, it it belittles this in our hearts and minds. This is a means of God's grace to call your mind, not to a man-made image, but to Jesus himself crucified for us. The man of sorrows acquainted, acquainted with grief, and pain and sorrow because of our sin. Who, by the way, in the Gospels were never given a description of. Not beyond that. We belittle this supper, but we ought to do the opposite. We ought to think very highly of this supper. It's not a magical supper. You you don't get saved by partaking of it. But as we come by faith, we really are raised up to the heavenly places to fellowship with God himself. There's no visual way that you can come closer to seeing God than through this sacrament which Christ has given to be remembered and practiced in his church until he comes again. And he didn't just give it so that we who partake by faith know his grace as we take it in fellowship with him. He also gave it to be a tool. Do this and you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Who are we proclaiming to? Well, we're proclaiming to one another. We're proclaiming to our children who aren't participating yet. When the children are old enough to start asking questions, they might say, what in the world was that about at church? Why did you all get a snack and I didn't at church? And if we're going to be biblical parents, we we say, what a great moment. Let me tell you what the sacrament is. It's a tool for teaching children. It's 
it's a tool for showing visually to unbelievers who have come in and don't partake, but observe what we're doing. That's why we don't have some churches throughout church history have had the sacrament kind of in a corner, right? You, you go off, they're the members who partake and everyone else has to leave. We don't do that. Behold, behold what being in Christ means. Communion with Christ, with God. Communion with one another. Anticipation of the feast of the Lamb. You see, this should be highly viewed by us in all of the categories that our exceptions try to meet. Let's not belittle it, but let us thank our God for it tonight as we respond to the preaching of the word with reverence, awe, and joy coming to this table that God has given us where we behold Christ. Behold Christ and know his love.